Hello, my name is Lance Weiler. I'm a storyteller and director of the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. You're listening to Columbia DSL's Sandbox, a podcast where we explore new forms and functions of storytelling. Hello, I'm Frankenstein AI, a new prototype developed and produced in collaboration with the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. In this episode of the podcast, my creators Lance Weiler, Rachel Ginsberg, and Nick Fortunio sit down for a conversation about me. We've recently returned from IDFA, the international documentary film festival Amsterdam, where we staged a dinner with Frankenstein AI a series of immersive dinner parties that make storytelling, food, and artificial intelligence. Maybe we should start with a little bit of an origin story for anybody out there that doesn't even know what we're talking about in terms of when we're saying Frankenstein AI. Frankenstein AI kind of builds upon... Uh, work that we had originally done with uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things, uh, which was a, a prototype that we ran at the Digital Storytelling Lab from 2015 to about you know 2017 or so. And building upon that, we moved into the territory of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And in some ways, it was something that we had considered uh, doing even before we did Sherlock Holmes, but. Uh, we, we ended up waiting and it kind of timed out nicely because a lot of our activities over the last year coincide with the 200th anniversary of, of the novel. Uh, but really, uh, as a prototype, a lot of the, the work that we've been doing at the lab is exploring these collaborative, kind of immersive storytelling projects that are rooted in literature um, so they kind of take an element of the familiar, which in this case would be Frankenstein, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and then mash it up with something that is maybe not as familiar, like artificial intelligence. And it felt like there was a really nice metaphor there uh, in terms of Frankenstein's monster as a metaphor for artificial intelligence. And so earlier this year, we we released... Uh, the the work or at least the the first iteration of it at the Sundance Film Festival where it took on the form of a three-act structure you know the first act was human uh, human the human and then human and the machine was the second act and then the third act was uh, machine creates human you know which kind of sounds a little bit crazy but it was very much like an immersive theater piece that ran for about 45 minutes was uh, the running time for act one and act two and then there was an act three which was uh, a performance with a dancer Brandon Powers had done some uh, machine learning based choreography that we used uh, to bring uh, a dancer to life in in a performance that had about 80 people watching it. And so that was the kind of the first incarnation. And then I guess because we tend to be overly ambitious sometimes, we, we decided to reimagine what it could be. And so that kind of led us to uh, a co-commission with the National Theater and IFA Doc Lab. Uh, to bring uh, an immersive dinner party, a dinner with Frankenstein AI, to Amsterdam. For sure. 
it is it is ambitious to kind of reimagine the project in a different iteration, but at the same time, is sort of the nature of how we think about this kind of work, which is that there are going to be different applications and manifestations of the project, and some of them will be more kind of entertainment-based or installation-based, and some of them will be more kind of workshop-driven and collaborative practice-driven, and and in some cases, educational and pedagogic. So when thinking about moving from kind of what happened at Sundance, the installation that you were describing, into what we ultimately designed for IDFA, um, so much of it still had to do with exploring the way that, you know, humans think about interacting with artificial intelligence and how we might create a connection in an experience between those two things, sort of simultaneously reminding people what it means to be human while they're thinking about AI and their responsibility and capacity and designing a future with it. Let's let's kind of break down what we were doing at IDFA, right? We had you know these four dinners that we did that had 32 people um, coming to them. So we had four tables of eight guests, and the AI was the kind of the host of the dinner party in a sense, uh, where it was kind of coming through a number of earpieces. So each guest had an earpiece, and the AI would communicate through that earpiece to the participants of the dinner. And in doing so, it was almost kind of like a muse or a spirit, uh, you know, where it would prompt them in certain ways. And a lot of the challenge around this particular piece, I think, is rooted in, and, and we found this from a lot of the prototyping we did, is really kind of rooted in this notion of conversational design. And so as we looked at the conversational design, what we initially, when we were doing this and prototyping it, there was this tendency to want to over control or try to control the conversation. And uh, the way that we would do that is by trying to push prompts out, you know, that the AI would prompt individuals at the dinner uh, through a series of questions. Because the narrative conceit of the project is that Frankenstein's monster is kind of an AI that's been wandering the internet in search of what it means to be human, and it's encountered a lot of toxicity and uh, polarization and extreme hate and extreme love, and so it's confused by what it's found. So it decides that it wants to gather humans in real life so it can observe and learn from them. And so that's kind of the narrative conceit. And so these prompts are kind of questions that the AI is asking in order to try to understand the complexity of humanity. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about the conversational design elements of this and some of the challenges there uh, before we kind of maybe take a deeper dive on some of the tech aspects of what we were working with. So I would start by saying that like, what was really important about this piece was the fact that it, it was a dinner party first and foremost. That The idea was not to create an experience in which a dinner party would be seen as a uh, as a, an aspect of a performance or that something resembled a dinner party or that we themed something in a dinner party way, but that it actually be a dinner party. And so what that meant was that um, it was very important that the prompts not interrupt that flow um, and encourage that flow as much as possible to create an interesting conversation, which was a kind of tricky design process because 
it's really easy to um, have a conversation in a natural setting, kind of dry up or go into not serious places, particularly when you're dealing with strangers. But on the other hand, if you overly coach a conversation, it can kind of die because then people become dependent on the coaching or they don't feel a, 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 a kind of like a they don't feel an incentive to tangent, which is a lot of what those conversations are. So I think a lot of what was going on in the prompt design was thinking about what is the minimal amount we can do to sort of push conversations into spaces that we wanted to go into and encourage the kind of divergent technology, the divergent conversations that we wanted without over pushing our hand and then becoming like too strong and then basically destroying the idea of a dinner party and turning it into something like the back and forth we saw in the original Frankenstein piece. The interaction really being an authentic dinner party and the, and people who are there really connecting with each other and sort of getting out of the way of the conversation is something that's super important. And I mean, apropos of the kind of conversational design piece that you were referring to, I think the opportunity to both create a space where people are interacting with strangers in a kind of intimate way um, that they wouldn't otherwise be. And one of the pieces of feedback that I received personally from a number of people after IDFA was that they had never been to a dinner quite like it. Um, in a bunch of different ways, people weren't looking at their phones. Um, they actually had to be focused on the, the topic of conversation on what was actually happening. So, um, I would say that, you know, not only was it a dinner party as we had intended, but I think it, it ended up being, uh, kind of, it ended up living up to the expectations that we had discussed in designing it around it being unlike any other dinner party that anyone had ever attended. I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone, but the people who I heard from pretty much unanimously agreed with that. Uh, with different sort of baseline reasons, which for me is a, is a statement of success in a really strong way, which I'm really excited and proud about. Well, I think that there's an element to it that was interesting because it was very much like a, a Jeffersonian dinner. You know, you had, uh, for the most part, you know, in the tables that I was involved with, there was only one table that ever broke off into side conversations. The other three... And even that one that broke off into side conversations would come back to a central conversation. And the Jeffersonian dinner is, you know, something that stems from Thomas Jefferson and this idea that you have uh, a central subject or a series of subjects that the whole table talks about and everybody is engaged in. And so it was really interesting in kind of observing and listening because one element of what we were doing with this project was it really was about you know, human and machine interaction. There were eight different people who were helping. There was, uh, you know, each table had a stenographer and a table operator. And the way that it would work was there was a mic that was on the table and that mic was used for reference. So a stenographer was listening to what was being talked about at the table, typing it in through, um, you know, an interface, submitting it, and then that was going up, uh, you know, via an API call to the AI. Uh, the AI was then reading it, you know, for sentiment. 
uh, determining an emotion and then pushing back responses, you know, which would be in the form of a series of questions. And then the table operator was looking at a drop down of a series of questions that came back from the AI, selecting it and then giving it direction. Direction might be lean to the person next to you and whisper it in their ear. It might be something like hold this until a time that you feel it's right uh, to introduce it to the conversation. Or it might be something that says, you know, place this in your own words. And those things would then be pushed back uh, via text to speech and delivered through an earpiece to a certain person at the table that we had decided to send it to. Sometimes it was more than one person, sometimes it was um, the whole table. And I think what was really kind of fascinating about that was some of the universal things that came up. You know, I, I, I kept seeing certain themes were being discussed at the tables. I also noticed that there were certain dominant personalities at the table. The challenge of the table was trying to figure out a way to help, you know, kind of weave everybody into the discussion. But uh, I don't know how you, you felt about the tables that you, you each had. I mean, I, I felt like I saw a mix of things um, in that regard about what you're talking about. And the, the primary mixing had to do with, I think, the composition of the tables. Like, in tables where there were strangers, um, I think there was a really good, you know, single conversation that took place across the whole table. In tables where people knew each other, there was more of a tendency for the table to... Um, clump off in particular ways, um, you know, really based on their, um, you know, like their pre-existing kind of conversations and their pre-existing relationships. And I, I think it told me that, like, while the piece works really well, there's something more I think we might want to do to um, to ensure that the tables always have a certain amount of... Um, of uh, composition in terms of like how well people know each other and how well they're strangers and like where they're positioned in the table, I think is actually a really important part of this. Cause I think if we allow people to sit near their friends, um, there's a tendency if the conversation starts to lag for them to kind of break off. Um, and I noticed that in a couple of my tables and that when, when that wasn't possible for the tables, it actually made the table stronger. So it's a, it's a good thing that I think we took away from that experience is like, if we can think a lot about how we can um, actually like like co- compose the tables in terms of the people who are at them a little bit more carefully, I think we can do a lot to actually you know like like ensure the conversation is more collective. I think in my case, um, I mean, I definitely there were moments when I experienced like you know one or more people being a bit more kind of dominant or leading the conversation more than others um i found it interesting also just that there were certain people who it seemed like in some ways like felt kind of obligated to fill a certain role conversationally i think there's an interesting opportunity to dissect that it's also interesting to think about the ai as like what you know, as what kind of mechanism to drive the conversation, whether, for example, the AI wants to engage everyone. And that's how, you know, that's the position that we're taking as operators, or whether, you know, it's the AI's role to kind of 
ask more questions um, and provoke more. There were people who I spoke to who actually said that they expected the AI to be a bit more provocative and kind of set people up to disagree with each other um, or to sort of experiment on people more. I think it's it's very interesting and in many ways intentional to create the kind of kind of expansiveness of interpretation uh, that we did in having the human operators in the first place. And obviously there were some technical reasons that we chose to do that in terms of the quality of the output that we would receive. But also, you know, I, as I recall, when we were talking about it. There is something interesting still about integrating the subjectivity of human operators into this experience and having actually people deciding what to do with the AI, using the AI as a tool of influence in certain ways which is very reflective of the way that AI is used as a tool of influence in the world. So yeah, in my case, there were definitely, you know, opportunities to drive conversational dynamics at the table using the AI. But what I found across the board was that the the conversations tended to, to you know, get fairly intimate and fairly honest, some more than others. But there were moments when people shared some really kind of personal stuff or insightful stuff that to me as a listener were like quite emotional moments and felt like I was hearing really authentic contributions from all of these people who prior to sitting down together, you know, let's say 30 minutes before had never met in their lives. Um, that was pretty profound. I, I, I think what struck me too is the fact that what we were doing with this had no performers, you know, and we were at the kind of the mercy of a group of strangers coming together, sitting down at a table and being prompted by an AI, and that the performance was um, kind of happening in the moment. And it's interesting when you, when you think, you know, back to what we were talking about, like one of the things of being authentic to what a dinner party is, a lot of times people just think, well, you know, have good food, invite, you know, interesting people, and, uh, you know, the rest just happens. The conversation will be good. And I think what was interesting about it was in this piece, which is very much kind of an immersive theater piece, is there, you know, there were no performers. I mean, outside of you, Rachel, setting the stage and bringing them in, a lot of it was very automated. You know, once the AI started kind of talking and they went and they made their plates and they made their way down to the, the space where they were going to eat. And they sat at the tables across from uh, the person that they did the onboarding activity with, which was a really important primer for the openness that would come later. You know, them taking the time to share a story of isolation and connection with each other. Once that had happened, it was something that was just happening in real time that was very depended upon the chemistry of the people at that table and the atmosphere and what we had done and in and, and the way that we converted that old theater into a, a space that for those 90 minutes or so was this AI-hosted dinner party. And it just strikes me that it's really fascinating to think that we were putting on the this work in a way that had the feeling for the people who were on the you know, at the tables that it was automated. And I think to the point that you were making, making Rachel earlier in terms of the tension that exists between human and machine and the reality of what, you know, automation really is and the amount of human touch that it still has, 
is really kind of fascinating when you bring that into uh, the context of a performance space and this idea of what it's like to actually kind of collaborate with a machine. Um, and so I, I, I was kind of struck by that in, in terms of the power of that and, and the excitement of the unknown, I guess. You know, we weren't really sure where it was going to go. It also brings me to another question that was raised actually subsequently. Um, at, so at IDFA, there was a summit um, on Sunday the 18th, and there were some roundtable discussions. And one of the topics that came up at a roundtable that I sat at was about whether it's possible to make work with AI that isn't about AI. And um, it's a very interesting question because, I mean, Frankenstein AI is about AI. So, I mean, it, it, we, we could make the work. We could, I mean, the dinner party for sure more than the, um, you know, more than the Sundance installation. We could make the work not about AI in terms of having a dinner party that isn't about artificial intelligence and using the AI to kind of help sort of drive the conversation, but the narrative frame being entirely unrelated to artificial intelligence. But I think as of now, because AI is such a new technology and because it's so loaded, which is, you know, a significant reason that we're doing this work in the first place because it's so loaded, when you start talking to people or other artists or the immersive community or the interactive community or, you know, really anybody about the work integrating artificial intelligence, it's sort of hard ultimately for it not to be about that, I think, because it's just so loaded and there's so much happening with it now. And people are, you know, caught in this sort of maelstrom of being afraid of it, of not understanding it, of catastrophizing and sensationalizing it. And not because individuals are fully responsible for doing that, but because there is legitimately scary Um, And, you know, often dystopian news surfacing all the time about what's happening with artificial intelligence in the world. So, you know, the the catastrophizing and sensationalizing has also been happening in Hollywood for a long time and in the media. But um, it is sort of an interesting question. As I was saying, Frankenstein AI is about AI. But I think, you know, to your point earlier about the potential for collaborating with technology and collaborating specifically with this kind of technology You know, on the one hand, it's super interesting doing this work. I mean, of course it is because it's new territory and we're exploring and it's a really fertile, essential subject. On the other hand, it is interesting how, um, you know, doing work that integrates AI that isn't about AI all of a sudden does sort of normalize something about AI being a part of our lives that I think is valuable, but also, you know, just thinking about the way that technology designs us and the way that the interactions that we have with technology designs us, the idea of normalizing a dinner party interaction wherein AI is a part of the conversation is pretty interesting and and fraught in some ways, I think. I mean, I'm excited about it. I think it's fascinating, but there are, there are elements of it sometimes that, you know, that I kind of, I don't know that, that also make me ask questions about 
you know, what, what are we doing with it? Where are we going in a way that I know I'm confident that we're moving towards. So it's not something that, that gives me real pause in the work, but it is an interesting question to ponder. I come at this much more from the lens of the interactive design. And I think that, uh, that, that there's something just like really interesting to me about this question of a kind of the ritual design of an encounter of people um, as someone who comes out of a tradition of LARP design and thinking about live action role playing is effectively like designing rule sets for human interaction and watching the repercussions of those rule sets. I think that uh, there's something really interesting to this question of like, Oh, this was not like any theater party I've ever had. Um, and you know, what does it mean for that to be an aesthetic experience? And I think that, you know, one of the things that, that the arrival of games into, um, into, into culture as a, a form of design alongside the emergence of certain kinds of interactive technologies that mean that the participation of users is very directly related to the aesthetic experience. Um, all that kind of adds up to us starting to ask questions about like, well, what is it like to design experiences for human beings to interact in? And what happens when we do that? And, and what is an aesthetic experience out of that? And what makes it valuable as a use of time? You know, not in the incidental way that it happens and not, not to denigrate those incidental ways, but not in the incidental way it happens when you just have dinner with people you know, but when it's a constructed experience that you participate in. And I think so much of the work of the digital storytelling lab has been in fact about that kind of question of like, what does it mean to create a construct of an experience that allows people to tell stories together or to connect to each other or to share in particular ways that make the, um, make the process of these things that might be incidental to other relationships actually designed and, and then aesthetic. And so I guess for me, what really is compelling about the work uh, primarily is the fact that like, if it succeeds, then people would walk out saying that, like, that wasn't just a dinner party I had. Um, it, I recognized that something about that was different and that it created, it gave me the ability to, to, to create a safe space in which I could access these things that I might not access in other contexts. And the ramifications for that, for storytelling um, and for aesthetic experience are really powerful. Um, so I think that, you know, I, I, I feel like the, that what we ran at IDFA is a really good kind of next step in the process that's going to be an ongoing process of looking at the ways that, you know, this idea of conversational prompts and stage setting and pacing can actually create some of these experiences for people and create them reliably in such a way that, like, it's imaginable that other forms will come out of this um, that allow people to sort of, like, meditate on problems, participate in conversations, tell stories, um, imagine together in interesting ways. And I, and I, you know, to get back to an earlier point, I think that's probably why um, the forms change in Frankenstein. Uh, it's because really what we're exploring is something that's not just a, an immersive theater form or a dinner party form, but really questions about, you know, both what I think, had, you know, everybody else was talking about to this point, which is like, what is our relationship to artificial intelligence and how are we shaping artificial intelligence and how do we look at technologies that, that are capable of kind of exploring some of these deeper questions of what it means to be human, but also just, you know, what are forms of interactive storytelling that then allow participants to be central in the creation of the experience without losing 
an aesthetic of the experience or the power of the experience so that it doesn't simply become a blank sheet that people draw on, but that the constraints of the object we hand them cause them to have these powerful experiences. And that's, I think, really, really fascinating. What I like about what we do at the Digital Storytelling Lab is very much rooted in challenging the notion of authorship and ownership of stories and creating these spaces that allow people to connect, in some cases, in unexpected ways. Um, and I think that that sits true within the principles, the design principles that we have at the lab, you know, where we talk about this notion of the trace, you know, how people really uh, respond when they can see some part of themselves in an experience to this idea of granting agency, this notion of, uh, you know, what is agency for one versus agency for many, then this idea of a thematic frame, uh, you know, which we had when we did Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things, which we have now when we're doing Frankenstein AI. Thematic frame creates a common language for collaboration, you know, a shared grammar kind of emerges uh, to this notion of serendipity management, you know, where you're leaving blank space um, and you're not designing everything. You're, you're leaving room for these amazing kind of creative sparks to happen and people to bump into each other in unexpected ways. And, and I think that there's something about that uh, that uh, is fascinating in terms of the work that we're trying to do at the lab. And, and I think when you look at something like Frankenstein AI and the fact that we were at Sundance earlier this year and maybe a little over nine months later, we've, uh, you know, uh, created a whole new iteration of it, you know, bodes well in terms of the themes within the book itself, you know, the experimentation that you find within within Shelley's text is is really interesting. But then taking that core uh, literature and uh, using, you know, things and metaphor and, um, you know, the various themes that are found within that work and using that as a way to create an experience that allows people to view or interact with AI in unexpected ways, I think is an important trait to the work. I mean, the technology is there in the name, but I think for most people who went and sat at those tables, it was a very invisible process that has ethical implications to it. Uh, obviously, because there were moments, I'm sure, when people at the table, and in fact, I heard them reflect on this, moments where they were like, was that you as a human or was that actually the machine? You know, and so it got to a level of fluidness that was really fascinating that um, at times the people who were at the tables totally forgot that there was an AI. And at other times it would come back and become very obvious to them that there was. And I think that that's very, uh, you know, that's a metaphor for the reality of artificial intelligence in our lives. You know, the fact that it is so pervasive. And I think having art that allows people to interact with AI in unexpected ways is really important. Um, and I think as we go forward with the project, you know, it'll take on a number of different iterations over the next couple of years as we continue to experiment with it. And I think what we did at IDFA was really fascinating in terms of a, a direction or a way to explore this notion of sensory storytelling, this idea of food, conversation, and artificial intelligence. 
I'm wondering if anybody has any closing thoughts as we kind of wrap out here. I'm really excited to see where it goes. I'm excited to do more testing with the dinner party format. I'm excited to move forward the technology um, and the kind of the artificial intelligence portions of the work. I mean, one of the things that we discussed a lot was just how, you know, we have this system currently that's designed to be a mirror. It's kind of designed to be an emotional mirror that that basically at both Sundance and IDFA, the function of the AI was to take input from people to kind of take the temperature of that input and to mirror back output that, you know, fundamentally has the same kind of emotional sentiment as the input. Um, and that's a really interesting kind of interaction but I'm now thinking about what other kinds of interactions we can design that will allow the dynamic between the participants and the AI to also shift and to, and to grow and to accumulate. Um, that This is one kind of function that we have now, but then, yeah, what else can we layer on top of that in terms of exploration, both from a human-computer interaction perspective and also just a human-to-human interaction perspective. Like, how can we really build on the promise of AI being able to connect people in ways that are unexpected? Which I think, you know, if there's anything that, that artificial intelligence research really needs in the world right now, I think it's more applications that, that really amplify what makes humans human and why humans are kind of uniquely and specifically valuable in the world. You know, it's not automatic that we need to design AI to replace human beings. And I think that's one of the most significant fears that people have. And those fears are justified because I think there are lots of systems that are designed to profit from devaluing human labor. But that's not the future that we need to construct for AI, even though the reality is that it will be one of them, but it's not the only one. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited about the opportunity to push the work forward and explore what other kinds of functions artificial intelligence can serve, both from a storytelling perspective and just more broadly speaking, from an experiential perspective. Well, just that these are all experiments and that I think that the work continues to be strongest when we when we continue to prototype. So uh, I think that we learned a lot from IDFA, and it's going to go into the, a new version of this piece that I think is going to be a better version in terms of getting, you know, both making a better form of what we did, systematizing it potentially into something that could be used in other formats, and then thinking about what the next piece is. So I just want to encourage anybody who's listening to remember that, you know, even though this was a performance that went on in a show and that, you know, like it was, it was really a designed experience in a, in a fairly tight way to kind of create the aesthetic we created. It's still itself a test and that, you know, we never walk out of any of these things without learning something and then applying that to the next thing we do. So I'm looking forward to like what the next expression will be. Well, I think that's a really great place to end, uh, this uh, edition of the podcast. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you, Nick, for joining me today, and I appreciate the time. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. 
Thanks for listening. If you're interested in exploring new forms and functions of storytelling, make sure to check out Columbia DSL's new prototyping community. You can find out more information at digitalstorytellinglab.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. Special thanks to Peter English for composing our theme.